passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome, everybody, to a special Wednesday night edition. I am John Pollock alongside Wei Ting. Hello, Wei. Hey, John. How you doing? It is our G1 coverage. It's a special Wednesday night, and it's free. Everybody can listen to this. I can just sense uh, so much pressure on our shoulders because all the ears are open listening to us as we discuss tonight's G1 show and everything else in the world. I know. I'm, I'm feeling a little shy. Usually we, we do these G1 shows kind of in the privacy of the Post Wrestling Cafe, but now we've opened the doors to the cafe and... The whole world can hear us, so um, I, I, you know, I, I'm a little nervous. You know what I learned on Wednesday, July the 24th? What's that? Rounders is a very popular movie that holds up extremely well 20 years later. Oh, yeah, I know that. Um, and I've had many people tell me that I should see Rounders, so thank you, everybody. I will get right to it. It's It's shocking you've not seen it, but... Hold off, because oh, yeah. I, I, no, I think that, that should be news. A, a group watch. Yeah, it was. A, it was. Uh, I saw it on CNN today. Waiting has never seen Rounders. The whole world couldn't believe it. I'm wondering if you and I should just. How much time could we add to our lives if every Monday, every Tuesday, we just came on this show? We'll plug our shows. We'll read the results from Raw, and then we're just going to make like some jokes, talk about some movies from our childhood, in and out in 20 minutes. And we just focus on like something like rounders because that's what what stays with people, not the other hour and 38 minutes. If we talked about wrestling in the banter and instead talked about rounders in the body of the, of the movie, I feel like people would start talking to us about there's probably a rounders podcast out there where they talk about wrestling in the banter and they probably get a bunch of messages just focusing on the wrestling. There is a there is a Twitter handle called Rounders Podcast, but it is about baseball. A podcast about baseball history and its impact on America, hosted by Jeffrey A. Lambert. The latest episode is the story of the spitball. Uh, wow. At Rounders Podcast. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to know how how many episodes you know somebody could go only talking about Rounders. This is kind of crazy. The, the last guest 
on this show was a guy by the name of Mo Berg, who, if I'm not mistaken... Isn't he a music producer? Yes, and <laughs> went to Robin Black's wedding, and I was at this wedding with this person. Yeah, I think I know... Uh, yeah, of course, Mo Berg, yeah. Um, well, so Mo Berg was the last guest on the Rounders podcast, uh, episode 21. No, 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 there's a different Mo Berg, isn't Oh, there? this is a different Mo Berg? It has to be a different one, like, I don't know... Why? See, there's a baseball would... Moberg, but he died in 1972. I this might be. I I don't know where this podcast is based, so I I don't know if it's a different Moberg or because there's no photo attachment, just their their name is listed. Oh, it it is not the same one. Our latest podcast episode: a linguist, an attorney, a professional baseball player, a war hero. The story of Moberg. So it's a baseball player oh, who is named Moberg. Well, thank you. Um, mystery the, solved. The rabbit hole of the internet is phenomenal, dude. Look what, look what we just created there. Jeffrey Lambert is in his glory right now. Um, I think it was a great, I think, showcase of perhaps reading everything rather than just headlines. The dangers of that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we have a, a busy show and we have to... Get through a lot. We are going to be going through night number eight of the G1, and we will get you all caught up to date after the card from Hiroshima, which the pronunciation was uh, discussed on this show, which with them coming to the conclusion that it is Hiroshima. And we're also, because this is a free show and quite a lot happened today, uh, we were going to go through quickly uh, some news items. Uh, do you want to start with news or do you want to start with the G1? What do you feel like? Let's start with the news. Okay. So today, I guess... Well, there were several big stories, starting off with AEW announcing officially what most had expected, that their weekly television show, it's going to be occupying the time slot of 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, Wednesday nights on TNT, and this will start off October the 2nd with their first show from the Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C. Huge arena, and it's the date we had expected. Do you like this way Wednesday nights and have you started to envision your viewing schedule each week now? I feel like I've already done that uh, in the lead up to this. Cause I think Wednesday seemed to be, you know, the prime candidate. Um, I'd like it. I, I think it's, uh, you know, not neither Mondays, uh, not going head to head, neither Friday. So they're crafting out their own day. They are of course going head to head with the current time slot of WWE NXT on the WWE network. So, um, seeing how the WWE might respond to this, if at all, will be very fascinating. Yes, I think that's going to be the next one to watch is what happens with NXT now. Does it remain mm -hmm. in its current form or is it moved? Uh, is, is it moved? Are we going to see NXT on broadcast television within the next 12 months? That'll, that's going to be a really intriguing question to this entire, uh, this entire story. Absolutely. Do you feel like uh, Wednesday? Well, I suppose Tuesday was also talked about as well, but um, TNT airs basketball on Tuesdays, correct? Yes. I think they were going to run into more issues there. Um, I, I mean, Wednesday nights is fine. They're looking for their own night. It was not something where they were looking to go head to head. I think this would have been an even bigger story if they opted to try and go head to head. But that becomes very difficult, especially when you're trying to draw weekly in different cities. Um how they're going to be able to draw weekly uh, depending on the size of buildings that they run. Um, they're they're running a, a top-level building week number one, 
And they're going to be announcing ticket information of when it will go on sale Monday. Uh, Monday at noon, they'll be putting out that information. And I mean, are you for such a big arena for taping number one for their first live show? Uh, do you have high expectations that this is going to continue their sellout trend? Or do you feel that there's going to be like, this is obviously not going to be all out. This is a two hour television show, but it's also going to be the first one. And yep. I, I feel like this will be probably as, as special of a show as any of their pay-per-views that have uh, taken place. Maybe not in terms of match quality, but I think in terms of uh fanfare, in terms of appearances, um, I think a lot of people are going to be able to want to say that I was at the first AEW uh, whatever they want to call this on Wednesdays. Uh, I, so I, I definitely th- see a, see an early sellout for this. Uh, we now can confirm that Trish Stratus and Charlotte Flair are going to be having a match at SummerSlam coming up on August the 11th. This was teased on the promo on SmackDown Tuesday night. Uh, we kind of speculated about this on Rewind to SmackDown. Uh, Ryan Satin had reported that they were in talks, and then I was able to confirm on Wednesday that it's a done deal, the match is happening, and... Uh, do you like this match for SummerSlam now that it is uh, confirmed that it's happening? I loved it when it was just speculation yesterday, and I love it even more now that you've confirmed it, John. I I, I, I think it's it's really uh, – I, I would classify this sort of as like a dream match of um, you know WWE female wrestlers that have kind of led their respective eras, Trish, of course, and then uh, Charlotte – you know, I like this match even more so than uh, Alexa versus Trish when they initially announced that. I don't know if there would be any other participant. Uh, yeah, like really, Trish versus any of the, the the horsewomen, I think, is a big match. But I think Charlotte, to me, might be the biggest one. Yeah, I think that this is, you know, as we said on Tuesday night, I think that this match is going to feel bigger than the other two women's title matches. I think this is going to be promoted uh, heavier. You're certainly doing it in the best market possible that... I think that's a a real advantage here is that Trish has a lot of great relationships with mainstream media outlets based in the city. That is always great for the run up to a big show that she can go out there and promote this show. I think it's great for Charlotte because I would second guess this if Trish won this match, but I don't foresee that happening. I think this can go out there and they're going to have the benefit of even the two having a good match. It's going to be elevated because you should have a really hot crowd And if you look at the makeup of this card, it does feel like the WWE is somewhat tailoring this to the Canadian audience that you don't always see for Canadian shows. You've got Trish Stratus on this card. Kevin Owens is in a great babyface role going into this show against Shane McMahon. And you have Natalia challenging for the title as well. So I think you've positioned it for a lot of natural big moments for that live crowd that should keep them pretty lively throughout a long show. And I think this will... This will benefit that. Uh, Trish has not had a big singles match in years and years. So this is a very ambitious match to have against arguably the most talented woman on the roster. So I think that that's she's got that going for her as well. And for many people, this is going to feel like a special match because of your your two eras that are are meeting here to make SummerSlam feel like a big show. Certainly. Yeah, I look forward to the reaction. I think the crowd is going to love her. Uh, I think the crowd's going to be really excited for the match. So that is uh, our latest match for SummerSlam. SmackDown on Tuesday night did 2,162,000 viewers. So it was up from last week, making it their highest number on SmackDown since the Superstar Shakeup back on April the 16th. I don't know if there was a whole lot going into this show other than it was coming off a really big Raw. And I think that 
certainly had a bit of an effect. You sometimes see that when Raw does a big number, there's a trickle-down effect to SmackDown. And I attribute that as much as anything for SmackDown being up this week. It's really interesting. I mean, certainly, um, you know, uh, it, it makes you, again, wonder maybe what was the cause last week and if if that is the cause this week. You know, um, they did briefly, I guess, mention the Daniel Bryan thing, but can you throw the Daniel Bryan thing out the window at this point since it wasn't really... It really wasn't promoted. It was like a website item. I really don't look at it as a as a big thing for this week. Um, you, you really all they promoted was you know Shane was going to address um, Kevin Owens and Kofi Kingston was going to name his challenger. I mean, neither of those really jump out at me as a big thing. So I, I think this is more just raw reunion. Maybe there were more people that were going to check out SmackDown. Maybe being aware of the fact that. Eric Bischoff was showing on Raw. It's like, okay, we know now he's started, and we'll tune into SmackDown to see if there's any... And I think if you watched SmackDown, you would have no clue of any kind of difference in terms of the the creative on the show. No. Which, I mean, it's been pretty clear. Like, Eric Bischoff is very much assimilating himself, and it's you're not going to be seeing notable changes. Um, and I think looking at, at his role, at what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we move over to Impact Wrestling, and this is a a, a story that uh, was first discussed on Wednesday morning by uh, the Fight Oracle. This is the former front row Brian, who put out. I'm just going to read his his tweet here. Some news regarding the rumored Access TV Impact Wrestling deal. Access de- declined Impact's interest. Impact and Anthem then floated buying Access from AEG, Mark Cuban, Ryan Seacrest Media, CBS, and CAA. I don't know how they could afford it, would need huge private equity money, seems like a Hail Mary, Access is not interested in exploring a buyout with Anthem. Uh, Further to that, uh, Mike Johnson has reported that the talks of Anthem attempting to purchase Access TV go back at least three months, and the hope was that they would be able to finalize this and announce that they were moving to Access following Slammiversary, which was earlier this month on July the 7th, but the Access TV deal was not completed. Uh, Mike Johnson is stating that despite the rumors of the purchase being dead, uh, PWInsider.com is told by several sources that the talks are still active as of this week, and he goes on to say that uh, Access TV is one of several potential outlets Anthem has been looking at in order to add to their footprint in the United States, so it stands to reason that should the Access TV deal not happen, if Anthem acquires something else, that is where Impact will land. Uh, and this also follows Impact announcing earlier this week they had renewed their deal uh, with Twitch to continue uh, streaming on that platform. So quite a lot there. Um, the big one being that it was Impact, or Anthem, we should say, that was trying to float the idea of actually purchasing Access TV outright, which is enormous um, to get, you know, it would obviously be a heavily strategic buy, and one of the benefits would be Impact Wrestling being on more solid footing uh, with a U.S. broadcaster than they are now with the Pursuit Channel. Um, yeah. But I guess it, it really comes down to, um, is there, are, are these talks going anywhere? And if they are not, what is Anthem's next play? Certainly, yeah. I'd love to know who else is on the table. If not access, um, you know, that would improve imp- impact standings. And the uh, the uh, idea that um, Anthem could have purchased access or was considering purchasing access to house impact as well, n- not just that, but also to expand Anthem's, uh, I guess, portfolio of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, U.S. And, and 
therefore international broadcasting. That is something that I I definitely would understand that they would be very interested in. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's a it's an enormous undertaking to go out and just purchase a television network and also one that has enough um enough traction. I mean, it's one thing for Anthem to purchase something like the Pursuit Network and buy into that. Uh, it's quite another with access, and I don't know what your other options would be uh, beyond that. That would be number one for sale and how that would would necessarily work uh, financially for the company. But that's that's kind of where Impact is at, at this moment. Obviously, there is a big pressure to get Impact onto a better television platform, and it seems pretty unprecedented that the move is, well, we're just going to buy a better television situation for ourselves. So mm-hmm. it's a story that we're going to follow. It's obviously uh, one that could have uh, enormous repercussions if something yeah. like that went through uh, for impact. But it, this is like this to me is like we're putting all of our ch- I, I don't mean to use the poker analogy, but we are going all in and putting all of our chips in because this is the kind of move that if it doesn't work, it's. Uh, catastrophic, I would say, given the the amount you are looking at for the purchase of a of a network. Perhaps, yeah, but you know, who knows really? Kind of what uh, what the head of Anthem, um, what the heads of Anthem are, are really considering is is Impact their main priority, or is their main priority to create a larger network of television broadcasters? With Impact being perhaps you know one of its lead properties, um, we used to work for Anthem and. We definitely know that it didn't start out as a wrestling company. You know, it was always a series of television networks and and other, I guess, media projects. So maybe this has obviously something to do with Impact, but maybe it's not the the only reason. And that's always been their biggest struggle is getting into the U.S. Like that was always the carrot that was dangled was just getting whether it was the Fight Network or just getting clearance in the U.S. to a significant uh, degree that would be a game changer that's that was what it was always viewed as uh, uh that was always a priority mm-hmm. so it's a story that we will certainly follow and a, a potentially very big one uh nxt takeover in toronto i just finished watching tonight's nxt episode i'm not going to go through it because Braden and davy will be doing that on thursday but but the updated card for takeover in toronto what they've announced uh we have adam cole johnny gargano in the two out of three falls match and tonight Adam Cole or Johnny Gargano announced the stipulation for the first fall will be a street fight. Adam Cole then announced that the stipulation for the second fall way is going to be a professional wrestling match. Okay. Yeah, that's different. His stipulation is there's no stipulation. That might Which I don't be mind. Cool. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, and then if the th- if it goes to a third fall, William Regal decides that stipulation. They did not announce that on the broadcast. Then it's going to be Velveteen Dream defending the North American title in a three-way against Roderick Strong and Pete Dunne. The Street Profits defending the tag titles against Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish. And the finals of the breakout tournament uh, with Jordan Miles, who won a really fun match against uh, Angel Garza on tonight's show. He will take on the winner of next week's match between Cameron Grimes and Bronson Reed, the former Trevor Lee and Jonah Rock, respectively. And uh, that's what they have currently announced And our final news item is that the Verizon Arena in Little Rock, Arkansas, is advertising Brock Lesnar for Monday's episode of Raw, which 
makes sense, given that we have two Mondays to go until SummerSlam. And SummerSlam is creeping up very quickly. Uh, what? Week and a half? Two weeks? Two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks. Mm-hmm. And this city is going to be under siege with professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. I've been invited to all these shows, uh, people that have, like, got extra tickets and stuff. I feel so, uh, I feel so, uh, honored. And I just, I don't know what I'm going to be going to. Uh, as much as you can, I'm sure. Uh, while maintaining the G1 I, coverage, d- of course. Yeah, there's the G1 stuff, which mm-hmm. it is actually a blessing that, could you imagine if the G1 was somehow in the Eastern time zone going head to head with all of this stuff? Like, that would just be death. At least it's at a crazy hour in the morning that is actually beneficial that weekend for me. But I'm I'm debating going to Ring of Honor on Friday night uh, versus watching it at home that night. NXT, I'm leaning towards just watching the broadcast at home and doing all the, the site coverage because it's fun to go to takeovers. But if you're like one of us that is doing coverage and stuff, it's it's terrible because I can't do anything there at Scotiabank Arena uh, work-wise. So I'd just be sitting there. And then I just had that on my head the whole time is that we're not updating the site. I have to go home and do all that stuff. So I'm probably just going to stay home for takeover. Yeah, I probably will too. Are you thinking of going? You and I, we are we are definitely going to the OWE show on the Wednesday. We're going to WXW on Friday. And I'm kind of playing it by ear about other shows. But there's uh, is there anything else you're, you're kind of eyeing or is that probably it? I really wanted to go to the uh, WXW uh, Ambition Show, which is a shoot style uh, uh, pr- uh, promotion or I guess a, a branch. But we're doing the hangout that day, so I don't think we'd make it. Um, but really, like it's more the indie stuff that I think I'd be really curious to check out. Yeah, it's um, you know progress is going to be here. Oh, it was awesome on today's British Wrestling Experience. Uh, Martin and Benno were previewing the Progress versus Smash show, so of course they know all the Progress guys inside and out. But then they're reading off like all these local Ontario <laughs> indie names that like. I know all of these guys and and they're just like, I'm sorry, we really don't know anything about like uh, Kevin Bennett and Psycho Mike and uh, Tarek and uh, Brent Banks. I was like, it's it's like such a weird uh, feeling that like here is like our guys in Toronto and we're listening to our British show where they probably, you know, if we talk about Walter or Jordan Devlin, it's like those are guys they've been watching forever. It's it's um. The world is such a small place now. It's it's like bizarro world, yeah. It is. It really is. All right. Uh, I think before we start the G1 coverage, we should quickly, for those that might be listening uh, for free, talk a little bit about our coverage. Uh, Way and I are doing a podcast after every single G1 show, and those are available to members of the Post Wrestling Cafe at postwrestlingcafe.com. It is $6 uh, if you sign up, and that gets you access to all of our bonus shows. There's a minimum of... Two bonus shows per week Uh, during the G1. You're getting way more than that. And also access to the entire library. So you can go back. You can listen to all the prior G1 shows this year. Every single rewind away. Every single double shot gives you access to all of that. Uh, An RSS feed so you can easily add it on your phone. What a great value. All that plus access to the feedback threads on the forum. Uh, 20% off for the rest of the G1 at store.postwrestling.com. And your chance to support this whole project. And win free stuff every week on Rewind a Raw by being a cafe member and automatically entered into our draw to win a post-wrestling prize pack. Yes. We're giving you stuff. You're, you're going to make money off of this. It's a great uh, investment. Potentially, yeah. So there you go. You can check that out. Uh, and now we are going to get into 
night number eight. And it really is Bizarre World because on this one, I watch the undercard and I'm going to inform way of what happened prior to our tournament matches on Wednesday. So up first, we had Will Ospreay, Tomoki Honma, and Yuya Uemura versus Bad Luck Fale, Yujiro, and Chase Owens. Uh, this featured uh, Honma building up to a Kokeshi onto Owens that got a big reaction. Osprey came in, crowd was super hot, and they kept him and Fale. Uh, they interacted very, very briefly. Um, there was one great spot. Chase Owens looked great in this match. He took Will Osprey and went to deliver a spine buster and dropped him... Instead of dropping him on the mat, bounced him off the ropes with the spine buster. And then as he ricocheted off, pardon the play on words there, he lands on Owen's shoulders into a Death Valley driver. And it was just awesome. Uh, great interaction those two had. And then Yujiro and Owens double teamed Yuimura, and it ended with Yujiro winning with a DDT, pinning Yuimura in 9 minutes and 14 seconds. But uh, certainly for the... 60 to 90 seconds Will Ospreay was in, in particular with Chase Owens, was the highlight of the match. And we're going to see how Ospreay does with Bad Luck Fale on Saturday, because that's going to be his big test of the A block. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, I think if anybody has a great chance of giving Fale his best match of the, the whole tournament, it might be somebody like Will Ospreay. I, I, think, always... he's gonna, I think he's going to hit XL with that match. Really? Wow, that's pretty I, I bold. Do. I, I actually have high hopes for it. That's pretty bold, but okay. Um, I love watching Chase Owens. coffee. Maybe that's going to be one of my <laughs> breakdowns. I love watching Chase o- Owens on these undercards, along with the Young Lions, and uh, on this particular G1, uh, people like Minoru Suzuki, who are only participating in the undercards. Um, so they're people who whose job it is to not only you know do the bulk of the work for most, much, most, much of these matches, but to make sure that the people that they're working with don't get hurt. And I think Chase is, is one of the best. Yeah, I think a very underrated guy in New Japan. Zack Sabre Jr., Minoru Suzuki, and Lance Archer took on Evil, Sonata, and Bushi. Uh, Archer avoided the Paradise Lock, hit a black hole slam. Uh, there was an MX by Bushi, or at least a setup for it, and Archer stopped the MX with the EBD claw. But then he released. Sonata went for the skull end. Archer got out of that with the claw. And I kind of like it. He's establishing the claw. It's the counter to anything. Uh, Suzuki then just nails Bushi with the quick rear naked choke, gotch pile driver, and won in 8 minutes and 10 seconds. Rocky Romero noted that he owes Suzuki a beer. But okay. he is frightened of him. Yes. Um, I, I would say this was um, skippable if you're just going through stuff. Uh, Zack Sabre Jr. was barely involved here. No, nothing that they really pushed in terms of uh, your interactions for. I, I guess it's Lance Archer and Evil in the next uh, A Block match, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, I have it right here. It's Evil and Zack Sabre Jr. And Archer is taking on Abushi. So. It, they weren't even teasing anything with Archer. Uh, just average tag. Hiroshi Tanahashi and Shota Umino versus Kota Bushi and Ren Narita. I just read this lineup, and this is my decision that I want to watch this undercard. This oh, yeah. Was, this was really fun for the time it lasted. Tanahashi and Ibushi started the match. This was last year's final. And Umino's arm, his left arm was all taped up. And Kevin Kelly just casually notes, It's an elbow injury. He's probably working at about 70%, but not so bad that you're going to miss any time. You just suck it up and keep moving. That's probably the case for a lot of this uh, roster. <laughs> uh, it really, the, you know, Tanahashi and Ibushi, they did very limited interaction. It was more so Umino and Narita, which I had no problem with until the end when Narita got in with Tanahashi and Narita hit this suplex onto Tanahashi and he got a two count. 
And Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero treated this like it was the greatest feat in the history of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Ren Narita got a two count on Hiroshi Tanahashi. And then he applied the Boston Crab. And Tanahashi had to get to the rope. Uh, Narita tries the belly-to-belly, but Tanahashi blocks it, hits this poor guy with a sling blade, and pins him. Seven minutes, 46 seconds. And they did such great – the announcers took such great care of Ren Narita that the moral victory of getting a fucking two count on the ace was as though this guy gained life points uh, just being in there with Hiroshi Tanahashi. And – Announcers did a great job. I really enjoyed this for the brief time that we had the interactions here. And a really great showcase of Ren Narita getting to be in there for two minutes with Hiroshi Tanahashi. Yeah, Tanahashi faces Sonata next, uh, on the next uh, G1. Whereas Archer faces Kota Ibushi. So right. not, neither, neither had repaired with their opponents here. Kazuchika Okada, Yoshihashi, and Toa Hanare took on Kenta, Clark Connors, and Carl Fredericks. And... This was the match where they could not have done a better job getting you hyped for Okada and Kenta. At the beginning, and this was the most character Kenta's really displayed since coming to New Japan, he does the Rainmaker pose, and he's doing it as prick heel Kenta, and it really just, you you could get this vibe, like, Okada was not putting up with any of this shit, and he gets in there with Carl Fredericks, and he sidesteps Carl Fredericks, who's running the ropes, just so Okada can dart to the corner and shove Kenta to the floor. And as he's fighting with Carl Fredericks, he's not even looking at Fredericks. He's just dead-eyeing Kenta on the floor. Like, you little asshole. I'm going to get you. So they go to the floor. Kenta rams Okada into the guardrail really hard. Uh, Connor's got a hot tag. Um, and him and Carl Fredericks were in there with Toa Hanare. Carl Fredericks, dude, this guy's got some leaping ability. He got way up for this splash, and dude can get some height on his on his like vertical. Uh, Connors kicked out of a Yoshihashi lariat, and then uh, Yoshihashi applied the butterfly lock. So Connors submitted at eight fifty one. And as the post match is all going down, the camera cuts, and Okada and Kenta are standing on the floor, just like this was like a. A po- like a fight poster. They were just, their eyes were locked on each other and they just looked like they wanted to kill each other. They did s- such a great job of doing so little to get you so ready for this match. The two undefeated members of the A block who are having their first singles match ever on Saturday. I, I thought this was so great. It really is the task of these undercard matches, you know, to really, in a short amount of time, make you excited for the, the block matches that are going to take place the next day and they don't always, I think, do a great job, but uh, for main events, I feel like they they do pretty decent. Yeah, I thought uh, that was uh, the highlight of the undercard was uh, Kenta and Okada. So now we get into day number eight of the B, of the B Block tournament matches here, starting off with Juice Robinson and Toru Yano, who come into this with four points each uh, with two and one records. Uh, Yano early on tosses the turnbuckle padding towards Juice. And sets up a roll-up and then sent Juice into the, into the corner with his shoulder. And Juice ends up on the floor. Uh, the count is going. Each is trying to keep the other down on the floor. And Juice is in last at the count of 19. Then uh, Yano, Yano is checked and the athletic tape is found. Then Yano tells Marty Asami to go check Juice because he's got athletic tape. But it's all a ploy just so he can roll up Juice for another two count. Uh, Yano reverses a pulp friction. The low blow gets stopped, and Juice hits him with the left hand of God and the pulp friction to win in four minutes and 30 seconds. 
short match, but I thought a pretty decent Yano match. I thought all of his traps were pretty well laid and well-timed in execution. He, to me, feels at, like he actually has some credibility coming off of the wins over Jay White and uh, Tetsuya Naito. So there were moments where I think the audience really bought that he could beat Juice Robinson here. In terms of creativity, which is what I look for in a Yano match, I feel like these were all spots that you've seen before. Some of them, though, for the first time in the G1, but there was really nothing too memorable. Um, and I thought, you know, for these types of matches, I, I look to see what the opponent does. But I feel like Juice kind of played a, a pretty generic straight man's role here. It was just, to me, I found a way to get get him some points while giving uh, him a bit of a lighter day at the office here. I went medium with one milk. Um, th- this match didn't really grab me. Uh, it was it was fine. I was glad it was short, um, but it was... It sort of just felt like a um, a quiet day for Juice Robinson, which is fine. Everyone's owed these in the G1, but I didn't think it was one of the better matches of the tournament. Uh, where did you go? Yeah, I mean, I go medium one, cream two, but that, that to me is the role of a Yano match. I don't think they're supposed to hit, you know, uh, L or XO. Uh, I think there's different degrees, though, of how a Toriyano match uh, hits. And this, this to me wasn't, like, I, I'm all for a great Toriyano match. I just didn't think this was... What's the highest you think you could rate a Yano match? Um, I, I don't think he's like, it, it would take a miracle effort to get to an XL territory, but, uh, I don't, I don't dismiss that offhand. It's hard to say. Yeah. I, I, I remember last year, I, I thought last year he had one match that it was with Kenny Omega last year. They, they had a really phenomenal match because Kenny's obviously all in on whatever a Toriano uh, wants to do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just kind of the nature of like star ratings, how, uh, it's, even if, you know, let's say for this match, uh, per second, I definitely probably enjoyed it more than a lot of other matches because it was so brief and I was attentive throughout the entire thing. Um, but because it's a comedy match, I just don't don't think we we rate them the same way as we would a match where people are, you know, putting in full physical effort. Well, we're not the Academy Awards. We can give best picture to a comedy. Yeah. Nothing against it. I'm not against that. Hiroki Goto versus Taichi, both with two points uh, coming in here. And Taichi early on stepped on an LA Dojo t-shirt. And Goto starts attacking him. Uh, Taichi used uh, Miho Abe to distract and then attack Carl Fredericks, who was on the floor here in Goto's corner. And Goto got thrown into the post. Taichi was using his Kawada kicks, uh, raked the eyes to stop a Ushigoroshi, and then uh, nails him with a buzzsaw kick. And Taichi is starting to get frustrated because... Goto keeps kicking out. The pants come off. This was about eight minutes into the match. Uh, Goto fought back with a lot of kicks to the chest. And then Taichi's hitting his Kawada kicks again. Stops a GTR by grabbing the hair of Goto. And this would be Taichi's game was just unique ways to stop the GTR. Then uh, Taichi would throw Marty Asami in the way. And he got knocked down as Goto's running the ropes. And the mic stand gets involved. Goto ends up getting the mic stand, tosses it to the floor, kicks Taichi in the chest, goes for the GTR again, and Taichi pulls in Marty Asami. And as Marty Asami is uh, recovering and trying to get away, Taichi uh, ends up hitting a low blow and uses the ghetto clutch to pin Goto at 12 minutes and 13 seconds. I thought it started off pretty promising, at least uh, for a Taichi match, due to the, I thought, pretty interesting story of Taichi taunting Goto for his allegiance to the LA Dojo, which started even on the undercard the last time that these two uh, were paired off together before uh, uh, the start of this this particular leg. But all it really amounted to in this match were a few outside of ta- attacks, 
uh, and him stomping on the t-shirt. So I was a little di- disappointed by the end in that sense. And also when Tai Chi, like when he finally takes offense, um, certainly before the pants are off, it felt rather slow and dull, perhaps by design. But even after the pants did come off, I nothing about this particular interaction impressed me all that much. And though I think Goto is great, to me, just came across like quite generic and dull here to me. I never quite got into this match, and I really wasn't impressed with either the in-ring or the story. So I went medium, one cream, one sugar. Uh, I went medium, one milk on this one as well. I I thought, you know, back-to-back these matches, I, I thought this was our slowest start to any of the tournament days. And then after the match, like, Kevin Kelly and Goto were kind of lamenting, like, this is pretty much it for Goto. And mathematically, he's not out, but he does have two points, and... Like, it doesn't feel like he's not going to be positioned for this big storming comeback after all of this. And I've got to say, if Goto is out of this a week from now, like, mathematically, it's like, this is way too many times that they've done the boy who cried wolf with with Goto. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, I I just, I personally never really bought, bought into it either. But if the suggestion is that anybody sitting at two points right now has no chance of winning... Um, I mean that you also include Jay White in that category and as well as Jeff Cobb. Um, so I, I, it's interesting that they're only telling this narrative with Goto and not necessarily with those guys either. No. And it's like Goto is not technically out of this yet, but I, I would say given like they put so much stock in what this guy's done, we'll, we'll see how he's booked uh, going forward, but he really has no more matches to, to lose here uh, without him being legitimately mathematically out of it. And it's, it's going to be, tough to imagine that he's going to be one of the big players throughout the rest of this. John Moxley versus Shingo Takagi. Moxley with six points on top of the B block, take on Shingo Takagi with two points. Moxley's entrances, I really enjoy where he comes through the ring and then boom, the intensity meter just hits a 10. He gets right into Takagi's face and they went over the fact these two used to be part of the group Kamikaze in Dragon Gate USA together. So doing their homework here to explain the, uh, the history between these two. Yeah, yeah, that that little tidbit, I think, I don't know how much of their, their interaction, like how close they were as friends, I believe like Moxley, or Shingo talked about it actually in, on an interview on uh, NJPW1972.com, uh, um, I don't know if they were really close or anything like that, I don't think they were, but just the, the knowledge that these two had known each other, and the fact that this it, uh, brawl started as intense as it did off the off the top, I think immediately sucked anybody watching it uh, into this match. Uh, Moxley went for a suicide dive and got caught and Takagi hit him with a Death Valley driver onto the floor. Moxley fights back and he tells the, into the camera, I don't give a fuck. And then he applies a figure four in the ring and he goes to town on the knee of Takagi. Um, there's a sit out drop kick to the left knee and then a figure four around the post. Uh, they trade Germans. Moxley continually, whenever Takagi would get some momentum, he would just attack the knee. With a dragon screw, he uh, went for a figure four, and Takagi countered that with an inside cradle. Uh, then he did the, uh, I always love this spot, the Irish whip, where the guy with the bad knee collapses. He can't even run to the corner. I always love that spot. And the regal knee gets uh, avoided, and Takagi hits a Noshigami, and then a pumping bomber. This picked the crowd up. Uh, there was a short version of the Death Rider, more of a DDT, and Takagi kicked out of that. The knee then got dropped onto a table that was set up on the floor, so Takagi is struggling on the floor, hobbles back in, and 
like we talked about with Will Ospreay, where you beat the count and then you get nailed. Uh, that's what Moxley did here, because as soon as Takagi beat the count, he got hit with the regal knee and then went for the Death Rider, which Takagi blocked. Goes for another knee. Takagi catches it and hits him with Made in Japan for a big near fall. That was a great sequence uh, from the count out break to the regal knee and then through to the counter with the Made in Japan. Moxley... It's uh, sorry. So, it's something that like I, I'm really glad people are starting to do, including Will Ospreay and here of all people, John Moxley taking advantage. The fact that like in a real life setting, if somebody was nearly dead and barely able to make it into the ring, the moment that they were finally able to make it into the ring puts them in perfect position for you to just nail them with something. So I'm glad that um we, we're seeing people starting to do that. Yeah, it's like um it's like a boxer getting knocked down, but you don't have the the, the separation. The, yeah. You don't have the separation. It's like you just stagger back to your feet and it, the action immediately continues. You don't have that buffer. Uh, mm. That's kind of what this is. You're staggered on the floor. You come in and boom, you get nailed. Uh, I like that. Um, Moxley avoided the last of the dragon, kicks him in the back of the knee, hits a regal knee to the back of the head, and then another to the front. And he applies a clover leaf and Takagi taps out at 14 minutes 45 seconds. I loved that they used the clover leaf instead of just the Death Rider. And Moxley is diversifying what he can beat guys with, introducing a submission here, told the story with the knee. And I, I thought this match it 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 was kind of it was going at a good pace, and then it really picked up, I, I think, over the last five or six minutes. And uh this this to me, I went I went large, one milk, one sugar. It wasn't XL territory for me, but I thought the second best match on the show. I went XL with this one. I thought it was great. Um, to me, it was yet another display of, of a different style of a John Moxley match than we've seen in this G1. This was a much more traditional, focus on a body part style type of match. But I thought both of them were excellent here. I continue to enjoy seeing Moxley and unleash like new moves into his repertoire. He continues to impress me with just how different of a wrestler he starts to feel now compared to before. And Shingo's selling in this match was excellent. There's nothing too over the top, but very simple and very believable. Uh, so I thought these two like mesh remarkably well together. It certainly was not at the intensity of the Ishii match, but still really, really good. I think it might have been to me, you know, Moxley's second best match in the G1. Jeff Cobb versus Jay White. Cobb has two points and Jay White with zero at the bottom of the B block. Early on, Ghetto got involved, and it allowed White to capitalize and attack him. He was wrapping the, the uh, ring skirt around Cobb, and then used a reverse neckbreaker off the apron and started uh, working on the neck. Uh, Cobb went for this kip-up and got yanked by the hair uh, by Jay White and pulled him back down. Uh, White then landed a flatliner. All of his offenses centered around the neck, and Kevin Kelly marveled at this move by Jay White where he started baiting him by nudging his left side so that he would throw an elbow and be prone for the Saito suplex. And that was really cool. I love that. Yeah, and, and if and, Kelly hadn't pointed it out, you would not have noticed it because the camera was on the opposite side. Like, you never would have picked up that little nuance. Yeah, yeah, Kelly was in, uh, crucial for this. Cobb landed a deadlift superplex, and then White barely gets his shoulder off the mat. I, I think if you pay a lot of close attention, White does so many little things that are really great. Uh, the tour of the islands gets stopped with elbow strikes. Cobb then tries again. White lands behind and gets thrown into red shoes. Ghetto comes in with the brass knuckles. He's stopped and slammed. And then 
Uh, we get counters to the Blade Runner, the Tour of the Islands, and then a low blow onto Jeff Cobb. And then the Blade Runner gets countered with a German suplex. He goes again for the Tour of the Islands, and it's countered. Finally, White hits the Blade Runner, and he wins this match in 15 minutes and 53 seconds. Uh, I thought that I thought Jay White wrestled a really good match, and I I'm a big fan of his and the little things he does. But I don't think the audience was all that into this, and I can understand why a lot of the stuff with Ghetto was kind of just mind-numbing for me in this match. So I, I went I went medium, one milk, one sugar on this one. It did not hit large for me, although I can appreciate a lot of the, the subtle stuff in this match that Jay White is doing. I just didn't think it, it fully connected with the audience at large. Yeah, I went with the same one cream, one sugar, medium. Uh, I actually found the match pretty dull. You know, technically, I think it was a match that was fine, but I think in terms of charisma, I'm getting nothing from Jeff Cobb in this tournament. To, to me, he's just like a random body who's just, you know, very impressive when he does like big spots. But as a personality, I get way more from somebody like a Lance Archer in this tournament than uh, Jeff Cobb, which I'm I'm a little disappointed by. Jay White, I think, is very good. Like you said, I think a lot of people are catching on to like how intricate his style actually is and, and all the great things that he might do if you pay a lot of attention. But, man, like, I I think you could say that for a lot of wrestlers. You know, if you really watch, like, they probably impress you. I just, to me, at some point, I feel like it's up to the performer to be able to communicate something without having to force your audience member to watch incredibly closely. In the end, I just felt a little bored. Yeah, I, I do think Jeff Cobb is really getting lost in the shuffle in the in this G1. And you're right. I don't think he stood out, whether it's not capitalizing on your promo opportunities backstage or just, uh, you know, you're in with the, the deepest talent pool uh, of any tournament this year. So it's going to be tough to stand out. But that's kind of that's the goal of doing something like this is being able to to get that that shine on yourself and making a name for yourself. Yeah, and to me, it tells tells me again that like the the G one isn't necessarily just about the in ring. It's it's about the whole package. You know, how big of a personality are you? How much charisma can you inject into all of these matches that make you stand out from the rest? And unfortunately, um, Jeff Cobb is kind of getting getting lost. The main event was Tetsuya Naito versus Tomohiro Ishii. Naito has two points, and Ishii has four. And there's a big buzz as the match starts. They're bringing up that this is almost exactly the anniversary of the first time Naito delivered uh, the Destino. I believe it was 2015, they said, that he introduced it. And Naito, early on, applies his deep cravat, and he starts working over Ishii's neck. And he's hitting him with repeated strikes in the corner. Uh, Naito ducked a sliding lariat, and the flying form gets caught by Ishii with a German suplex. And then Naito kicks off the top rope with a Tornado DDT. So everything towards the neck. Uh, Ishii tries a superplex. Naito with the neck breaker. Then follows with a top rope Hurricane Rana. Um, then he hits the Gloria for a two count. Goes for the Destino and gets stopped. So Naito instead just hits a German. Ishii roars up and ends up taking a reverse Hurricane Rana onto his bad neck. Stops another Destino and hits a running lariat to take both of them down. And then in this very unique spot, Naito is seated on the top turnbuckle and Ishii is like a ram that just powers up with his head and nails Naito in his chin. Yeah, like a headbutt, um, like a like like sort of like a like a like a open palm strike, but with the head instead. Yeah, like an yeah, uppercut I, with the head. Sure. 
was like something that Ishii would would cook up and and present as as an idea that he came up with. Um, Ishii hit this unbelievable superplex and got a two count. He's on fire. The audience gets heated. Brainbuster gets stopped, and Naito hits a rolling kapu kick and hits the Destino. Only gets a two count. Ishii kicks out, stops another Destino, and man, Ishii he is so great at this that he just stumbles and he's like selling like he's lost his equilibrium. And the Brainbuster gets countered by a DDT by Naito. Ishii just gets up. He staggers into a lariat. He's grabbing his neck in pain. Uh, Naito drops him with what's called a Michinoku driver, but it comes down at a way more dangerous angle. It was more like a Northern Lights bomb. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be the best uh, term. And gets a two count off of that. And then gets up and hits a final Destino to pin Ishii at 19 minutes. And yeah, this was... Uh, Solid. I, I went extra large, one milk on this one. It was a really hot crowd, and Naito felt like a just massive, massive star in this post match. They were going nuts. His promo was his promo was great, and I don't know what the hell he said. I had to go to Chris Charlton's Twitter because he wasn't on this show uh, to see what he said. But it didn't even matter. Like I could just tell this guy whatever he's saying. It's awesome because this crowd is reacting as such. Yeah, um, Hiroshima kind of treats him as almost like an adopted hometown guy because of of how much Naito reps the uh, Hiroshima baseball team, the CARP. So uh, it it made sense that he closed the show here. You should have been on this broadcast. <laughs> uh, they they mentioned that, or they mentioned like at least his association with uh, with Hiroshima. I was not as big of a fan of this particular match. I personally felt it start a little slow. I really did like, though, by the time they, they really got into the rush towards the finish, that lasted very long. I, I will say I thought Naito definitely wrestled this one as if it felt like a must-win situation for him. He is sitting in the bottom uh, along with, you know, uh, poor uh, uh, Goto, who, you know, only at sitting at two points. If Naito didn't win this one, he would be right there with them. So he started with a very quick pace, applying a ton of pressure towards Ishii the entire time. To me, it, it almost felt like he was no longer tranquilo in a match like this. Instead, he's he's wrestling with a little bit of panic in there, and I kind of like that. Um, Ishii, though, I thought was the better performer of the two. Fantastic selling, all sorts of blood and drool and shit coming out of his mouth. Great comebacks. He made Naito look great. I just, I guess it just tells me that maybe I'm not as big of a fan of Naito as maybe a lot of people are. Um, I, you know, it's, it's just not a match that I liked as much as the Moxley versus... Uh, uh, um, um, oh, I forget. No, th- this definitely was not at that. No, no, no. Even the Moxley uh, uh oh. match on this particular show, I actually oh, okay. find myself getting into a bit more. Uh, Shingo, Shingo Takagi. So, okay. uh, you know, I have to rate that one a little bit less than that. So, I give this one a large one cream, one sugar. All right. Um, this was my match of the show, but uh, Moxley Takagi was number two for me. So, um, yeah, big reaction to Naito and probably. Starts his big comeback now. Uh, and not everyone can do these big comebacks. So people are going to have to lose here. And uh, probably over the next week, we're going to start to see people start to be eliminated uh, from the tournament. But after eight nights on the B-block side, John Moxley is alone on top with eight points. Juice Robinson is second with six. And then we have a five-way tie with Tetsuya Naito, Taichi, Shingo Takagi, Tomohiro Ishii, and Toru Yano, all with four points each. And then at the bottom, Jeff Cobb, Jay White, and Hiroki Goto are tied with two points each. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I'd certainly, you know, 
John Moxley sitting up top right now, but probably not going to end uh, up there. The fall of Moxley uh, could we'll be see. upon us. Uh, it'll be interesting to see um, who they have beat Moxley because Moxley is due for a loss, I would say, mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, they're going to be back this weekend. Saturday and Sunday, they have cards in Nagoya. And Saturday's show, the A-block matches will feature Kota Ibushi versus Lance Archer, Will Ospreay versus Bad Luck Fale, Evil versus Zack Sabre Jr., Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Sonata, and the big one, Kazuchika Okada versus Kenta. Uh, what is your prediction for Okada Kenta? Okada Kenta, do they go? Uh, yeah, who who who's going to suffer their first loss? I, hmm, man, I think that I think there's a great argument to Kenta winning this and getting the King of Pro Wrestling title match in October. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But um, I I feel like man, I already feel like this push is almost a little too strong for my liking, you know. And will they have them beat Kazuchika Okada? I. I'm going to say Okada for this one. I think Kenta has plenty of other opponents to fill the rest of his schedule already by this point. So um, he might still face Okada at some point, but I I don't necessarily see him getting it by way of beating him in this if, G1. If you are if you can only choose one to get the win over Okada in this tournament between uh, Kenta and Sonata, who, who are you picking? Between Kenta and Sonata only? Yeah, just between those two. Who do you feel would be uh, the person that it would... Be more valuable towards uh, if you're building to a title match. Um. Well, the Sonata story is like a long-lasting one, isn't it? Yes. And uh, I don't necess- necessarily see them cashing in on that one just yet. So I would delay that one for like at least another year. Um. So I don't. Well, how about how about this? I'll list his, Okada's remaining opponents, and you tell me yeah, who you sure. think will beat Okada. Okay. Um. Let's just go one by one. Just say yes or no. Archer. I'm gonna say yes. Yes. How hot okay. they've been pushing him? Like I could see him kind of having a getting a title shot in one of these B shows. Evil. No. Kotobushi. Um. I'm gonna say yes. Kenta. No. And Sonata. I'm gonna say no. Oh, okay. So you have Okada beating both of them. Yeah, very possible. Um. Yeah, I I think it all comes down to like you need an opponent for October, and I think that the G one should create that opponent. Um, so I see Okada losing two matches at least. Yeah. Um, so I would say uh, Abushi would be one I would definitely look towards, and potentially uh, I could see them doing Sonata, but I, I'm not dying to see that one. Um, no, not yet. And, and if I'm picking between Sonata and Kenta, I'm I'm picking Kenta. I, I'm really intrigued by this match. Like Kenta, um, this is a huge match for him on Saturday. They're all they've all been huge matches, but yeah, like yeah, he 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 definitely has to have a great performance against Kazuchika Okada. Yeah. Uh let, yes. Go ahead. Uh wh- while we're at it, let me just run through the B block matches for Sunday. We have uh, Hiroki Goto versus Toriyano, Juice Robinson versus Tomohiro Ishii, which will probably be really great. Jeff Cobb versus Taichi, which probably won't. Shingo Takagi versus Jay White. Uh, that's an interesting match. And the main event is Tetsuya Naito versus John Moxley. Naito versus Moxley. Awesome. Great. Yeah, another yeah, big one. That's huge. The contest. Let's go to the, our contest uh, uh, rankings, everybody. This is, of course, uh, the post-wrestling official G1 predictions contest that 
a number of you, 500 at least of you, submitted picks for at the beginning of the tournament. So we are uh, updating everybody with the leader. Oh my goodness. This person actually apologized to me for the screen name that he's having me read every single time. But <laughs> sitting atop, tied, three people. Among them, Joey Tribbiani, Too Sweet, Mark Butler, and Omri, all of them with 30 accurate predictions out of a possible 40 at this point. So doing very well. Uh, right beneath them is uh, the leader who has been a leader for the, a, a long time, Andy P and Z. He is tied for second place with 29 points with James W., Nicholas Da Silva, Sam Cowan, Zegro. And sitting at third with 28 points, Benjamin Colgol, Gavin Spears, Guillerme, Jake from Eastbourne, Ryland Turner, and Stevie D. So, man. Uh, if you're people, in the hunt, I'm I'm extremely impressed. Yeah. This is not an easy tournament to predict. Because certainly I don't know if at this point anybody in the post-wrestling family is other than sitting atop at number one, Davey Portman. Wow, Davey's on top? What a week he's been having. They, wow. the, the, the NXT tailgate party sellout. They made these cool wristbands that they're going to have at the, at, the, at the party. Now sitting atop the post-wrestling family C-block standings as well. So See, this is all karma for that haircut. And now everything, everything's coming up Portman. It's like the haircut has made him into a superhuman. He's our Juice Robinson. I think he's getting a way better push than Juice. Yeah, he's, yeah, you're right. Juice top. is in second. Davey's in first. Yeah, he's like more like John. Mo- well, like who's had a, who? Who like whose career skyrocketed after a haircut? Um, uh, not Dolph Ziggler. Remember yeah. when he dyed his hair the normal color? No, uh, that was that was bad. Usually the haircut is a bad move. Um, right. uh, well, anyway, it's working for Davey. But sitting right beneath him, Jamesy making a comeback, sitting at 25 points. He is tied. With Mike Murray, also at 25, and Wei Ting, also at 25. So, wow. Davey Portman, you're not the only person who got a haircut this week, so you watch out. Oh, shit. Wow. How many points does Davey have? 26. Oh, so it's neck and neck. It's neck and neck, yep. And right This be- is intense. I love it. And right beneath us, Vivian Murray, Mike Murray's little daughter, sitting at 24 points. So who wins That's that my battle? That's my pick. I, I think she's going to win it all. She's <laughs> she going to just win. be lurking. Man, she's really crept up, crept up from behind. I think, you know, not only uh, getting close to dad, but possibly beating dad and beating all of us. So Vivian Murray, very much on the race. Sad to say, Randobot2000 has fallen out of the top three, sitting now at fourth place with 23 points. However, he does still sit two points above British Wrestling Experience co-host Benno, who is in second last place of the C-Box standings at 21. He probably doesn't want to talk about it too much on the show. Um, and then sitting at the very bottom, though, Davey's girlfriend continuing to book in the series with uh, 16 points. So, I mean, Kota Ibushi could really have a, a stellar latter half of this tournament, and we could see her rise back up because, as far as I know, she she probably picked him for everything. Well, if Benno's listening, don't worry. Uh, Hobbs and Shaw is coming out next weekend, so <laughs> the, there there's good things to come in the world. All right. Well, this is uh, this contest is very exciting. So keep keep tuning in, and we will have updates throughout the contest of who is going to win. The fact that Naito is going to probably go on this big run now, uh, I know that 
uh, Vivian is a huge Naito fan. So mm-hmm. if she if she predicted with her heart, then she could be in for some big points coming up. She's more of a logic per, uh, uh, picker, I feel. Our, our ghetto, I guess. Yeah. Look in this tournament. All right. That's going to wrap things up. So thanks, to everyone, for tuning in for this free edition of our G1 Climax coverage. Uh, we will be back on the cafe with shows coming out Saturday and Sunday. And, of course, coming up this week, we're back Friday, Friday, Friday as well, John, because we have a, a, our latest edition of Rewind Away coming up, focusing on New Japan Pro Wrestling. But back in 2018, with their trip to Melbourne, Australia, for the Fallout Down Under shows. Yes, uh, we'll be reviewing that on Rewind Away. We'll also have the Cafe Hangout coming out Thursday afternoon. It'll be live at 3 Eastern. We'll be joined by uh, Brandon Howard Thurston of WrestleNomics to chat about the WWE's second quarterly report and earnings call. And I believe... We are also going to throw the earnings call itself up on the Patreon feed. So for mm-hmm. those that are subscribers, uh, we will put that uh, entire conference call up for those that want to listen and hear Vince McMahon say things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. We're going to try to start doing a lot more of these ever since uh, the the incredible uh, Seth Rollins um, uh, phoner for Monday. I think we're going to have to start rolling on all of these. Yes, uh, so that is all coming up this week. Of course, on the on the free site uh, at postwrestling.com this weekend, two editions of Cruel Summer that WH Park is hosting on Saturday and Sunday. We'll also have the Rocky Maya via picture show with Nate Milton joined by Marcus Vanderberg and Mike Mills chatting about Gridiron Gang. And then Saturday night, I'll be joined by Phil Chairtalk to review UFC 240 from Edmonton, Alberta, headlined by Max Holloway and Frankie Edgar, uh, which uh, Way's coming over to watch on Saturday, right? Sure. Chris Cyborg, Felicia Spencer. I'm going to, uh, let's go to Edmonton for that. Sure. Why not? All right. That's all coming up this weekend. So check that stuff out. And thank you for listening.